0: Be seated. I'd like to ask, if you will, to take a Bible and to turn to the Gospel of Mark, there toward the beginning of the New Testament, Mark chapter 15. Begin reading in verse 40 of Mark 15. This is uh, right at the end of the crucifixion when Jesus has just died. Hear God's word beginning in verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph, So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I'm going to stop reading from Mark there, and I want to read just three verses from the book of Philippians. Just hear these from chapter 2. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So ends the reading of God's word. Last week, uh, if you were here, we looked at Philippians chapter 2 about um, the need for unity in the church, and that comes by being humble, and Jesus is our example of humility. He humbled himself by becoming a man by being a servant to others and then dying uh, on a cross, a very shameful and painful, torturous death. And I said nobody likes to be humiliated. Certainly we don't set out to be embarrassed or be humiliated. No coach tries to fire up the team by saying, let's go out there today and be humiliated. Let's all get embarrassed. Well, chapter 2 of Philippians, um, as it talks about unity, we have to be reminded that in biblical times, just like today, Humility was not a characteristic held in high esteem. You might say it was off the radar. People didn't hold that up as a virtue. And yet we see that modeled in the life of Christ, and it becomes a virtue for believers. To be humble means to be of low mind, to know how lowly we are before God. It shows a willingness to serve rather than just to be served. Humility is not selfish. It's not conceited. It regards others as more important than yourself. So we had the example of Jesus humbling himself, His humility was chosen. He chose He chose to be, uh, to become a man. Uh, he did not grasp, as it says in Philippians two, the fact that he existed in the perfect form as God, and yet did not see that as something to be grasped, but became a man. If we look at the Middle East today and we see people grasping on the power, whether it 's a monarch in, that was in Egypt or in Libya or now in Syria or, or wherever. We just don't want to give up things that when we have things. If we reach a certain level, we want at least to stay there. Jesus did not see that as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. His humility was sacrificial. And what he gave up, he gave up riches. The only person ever to live on this earth who had the right to everything wound up, you might say, with nothing and became a servant. His humility was to the death that he chose to humble himself, even to the being put to death, not a death, not that any is better than others, but some you're surrounded by family and friends that love you and comfort you and tell you how much you have meant to them. But Jesus chose the worst kind of death to die in the face of enemies who were taunting him and mocking him and lying about him. And so Jesus who was here chose to become here. We who are here often want to see ourselves as up there and we want to demand that. So Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. As I read those two verses, not only was he humbled, but then God has exalted him. And something happened after Jesus' death, and that is God exalted him. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where even right now he sits at the right hand of God. And the Bible says he intercedes. He prays for his people right now. And it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In that day, the greatest name on the planet was Emperor Nero. And it's said that in Philippi, like all other Roman cities, as part of its practice, they would bow down to Nero. They would declare him to be Lord and Savior at every public event. They would bend the knee and declare that to be so of Nero. Paul says there's a name above that name, a name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This is prophetic of what will happen in the future. So history is moving toward that event, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. So really the question for you and me is not will we do that, uh, but will we do it now? We eventually will, like all people will. But will we do it now and today? So I want to go back to the passage in Mark and talk about the The historical surroundings of the crucifixion and the resurrection, well, really more the resurrection, I mean, is it really trustworthy? Uh, And when we read and listen to some of the the, who call themselves the new atheists today and, and are so adamant and so dogmatic and make it sound like this is just a fairy tale, I want to show you some striking things from the Gospel of Mark about this. Uh, First, he refers to the women. I began reading in verse 40. He mentions uh, three women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and and Josie and Salome, that they are there. And Mark tells us that when Jesus was crucified and when he died, uh, among the many others, there was a group of women who saw the whole thing. They saw it all. Uh, Verse 41 says that, They were not strangers. They had cared for the needs of Jesus and his disciples in Galilee. And they watched him die. Why would Mark mention this? Mark was writing to the Romans. They were impressed with action. They wanted to know what a person did rather than what they said. So his audience, those who would receive this uh, gospel, this synopsis of the life and teaching of Jesus, why would he mention this about the women watching this? I think there are two reasons. Um, One is when he says they were watching from a distance. It's a term that means they were scrutinizing everything that happened. Uh, If they had had binoculars, they would have been using them. That's what he's talking about. They were intently watching everything that was happening. They just weren't glancing every few moments. They were staring at it. They were studying what was happening on the cross when he died, when his body was taken down, and where he was buried in that tomb. And so Mark wants his readers to know, Mark wants us to know that that the women saw the details. And so later, when it would be proposed that the women and the disciples on that first Easter morning went to the wrong tomb, Mark is saying right here, they saw it all. They were not mistaken. They took in the details. They noticed everything that was happening. So it was later said... We find this even in the scriptures, that some of the enemies of Christ immediately began to say that the disciples had stolen the body and that they were saying that the resurrection had happened when it really was not. I think Mark also wanted to mention that the women saw it, and now this was just the way it was in those times in the Roman Empire, OK? He wants us to he says it the women who saw it, because in that day, a woman's testimony was not allowed in court. That's just the way it was. If Mark had been trying to tilt things or exaggerate them or make it more palatable, as though he were trying to beef up the story a little bit and exaggerate, he would not have used women as a testimony, not in that day and time. But he does that because he's trying to be accurate. He's telling us this is what happened. It is historical fact that it happened. So he's giving names and details and very specific Then he tells about Joseph of Arimathea in verses 42 and following. Uh, Another theory proposed by the opponents of the resurrection is that Jesus never really died on the cross. He just fainted. He swooned uh, and was put into the tomb and then in the dampness of the air a few days later he was revived came back. They don't go on to explain how he pushed over this gigantic stone and beat up the Roman guards all after having been tortured. But Mark tells us about this man, Joseph, um, and he names him so that he could be investigated as a witness. Normally, the Romans left the bodies of the crucified to be eaten by the vultures. But verse 44 tells us that Joseph goes to Pilate and says he went boldly and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate is surprised to find out that Jesus has died so quickly after only several hours rather than what could take a few days so he sends a soldier who had been an expert at this he sends him to go and to check and sure enough he comes back says yes he's dead and Pilate grants joseph's request for the body and joseph takes it and he puts it in a tomb that he owned and and puts a large stone in front of it now why draw attention to this why does mark put this in, in into that He's highlighting the historical nature of the Christian faith. He's naming people, and he's naming places, and he's naming times, because among all the major religions of the world, at least, Christianity is unique in that it stands or falls depending on whether certain historical events actually took place. You may say, well, how is that different from others? Well, if you take away any of the events of the the arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection... Of Christ, then you've destroyed Christianity at that point because it is not just a philosophy, it is not just a moral code. Whereas in some other religions, if you prove that Confucius or Buddha or even Muhammad never lived, if you could prove that for some reason, the religions based on their teachings would not change at all, it would not affect those religions because they are primarily ethical and philosophical systems of thought. But Christianity is different, because if Jesus did not exist, and if he did not live, and if he did not die, and if he did not rise from the dead, there is no truth in Christianity. That's why from the passage we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul in saying, if there is no resurrection... If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Drop all this talk about forgiveness of sins in heaven and such things as that. So he mentions these witnesses. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, these are now witnesses not just to the crucifixion and Joseph getting the body, but also to the resurrection. The women come, it tells us in chapter 16. What do they expect to find? They expect to find Jesus dead. There's no doubt that's what they expected. There was no anticipation that the tomb might be empty. If he's still there, we'll anoint him. No, they show up. They show up with these spices to anoint the body. It would have been like perfume, incense type thing. On the way, they even talk about who's going to move the stone in front of the tomb. Stones were placed there not to keep people in. They were intended to keep intruders and wild animals out. And even this stone must have been rather large. So they're wondering, how how are we going to move that to get into the tomb to anoint the body? They're coming to pay their last respects. There's no question that was what was on their minds. Verse 4 says they are surprised when they find that the tomb, the stone has been rolled away. First, they see that. They see that the stone is no longer there blocking the entrance. And then verse 5 says they enter, and there's a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They're alarmed. They're frightened. I mentioned at the first service that I assume most of us here, if not every one of us, knows what it's like to have close relatives to die. If you've lived in Macon a long time or from here, then they, I assume, are probably buried in nearby cemeteries. Uh, You know what it's like to drive away from a cemetery after a funeral service. Uh, These women were no different in their emotions. They are still grieving. All this is just uh, a number of hours having taken place. They had watched in horror the crucifixion. They had watched his death. They had watched where they had placed him in the tomb. They would seen it all. Now what would you feel if after today's service, like some of you probably would do, like my family when I was young used to do, we'd drive to the cemetery on Easter Sunday and we'd see where my grandmama and my granddaddy had been buried and my parents would talk about the flowers or lack of or what needed to be done and so forth. Well, what would you feel like if you drove over to Riverside today and where your relative is buried? It's open. Uh, the ground's been dug up, and the grave is open. I imagine you'd be stunned, shocked, speechless, maybe a little angry, maybe a little afraid. Of what's going on? Well, that's how the way these women felt. They, they would have experienced the same emotions to an extreme. And then this young man dressed in white, Mark's trying to communicate that he's an angel. What does he say? Well, he proclaims the truth. He says he's not here. He's risen. Jesus is risen from the dead. He wants them to be convinced the tomb is empty. Look in there. He's not here. Feel it, touch it, smell it, see it. This is not a fairy tale. There's not a once upon a time. There was this fellow in the Middle East, and he's a nice guy. The resurrection was a fact that they could attest to, that death did not hold him. The angel instructs the women to go back and tell the disciples, and especially Peter, Peter, Uh, recalling Jesus' earlier promise that after he had risen he would go ahead of them to Galilee the women in verse 8 they respond they're shocked, they tremble with fear this is not the reaction of people who thought these things were ordinary, you ever hear anybody talk about biblical times or the Bible they say yeah man they were so superstitious you know Jesus a person gets healed they attribute it to demon possession and then he's well, they had people walking on water left and right you know people rising from the dead on the way to the grocery store. It seemed like just these things were going on all the time. This was not ordinary. These women reacted the way you would react if something like this happened. A dead person alive? I want to leave you with this. If you are seeking, if you, you know, maybe you think Christ is who he claimed to be and and maybe that's the extent of it. Maybe it doesn't seem relevant to you. Or maybe you really trust in Christ as your Savior and you're staking your life and your eternity on it. I want to encourage you that your faith in Christ has strong historical basis. It was not dreamed up. It was not created years later by the disciples. It was not written into it back during the time of Constantine, four centuries later. The scriptures have been studied. The Bible has been studied and dissected like no other book. It has been critically looked at like no other, and you can rest your faith on that. Bernard Ram talks about how the Bible has outlasted its critics. He said, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession has been formed, the inscription has been cut, in the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. Voltaire was a French writer and philosopher, a well-known person, a celebrity of his day. He was a master of satire. He lived from the late 1600s to the later 1700s. He sought to laugh Christianity out of court. He said it is contrary to reason. He would have, had, he would have been arm-in-arm arm today with such men as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris that write and speak and have great followings and make lots of money. (laughs) Voltaire predicted the extinction of Christianity. He said that a hundred years after his death that the Bible would only be read by ignorant people and that you would only find copies of it preserved in museums. Ironic, isn't it, that 50 years after his death, in his very house, the house where he had lived, a national Bible society, used that house and his printing press to produce stacks of Bibles that went out around the world. So the question you have to ask yourself this morning is, can I rely on the truth of the Bible, especially when it becomes, you know, speaks to a Jesus and who he was and what he did? Say the, the answer is yes. I would say this, is it Is it answer every question or is it beyond question the scriptures? No, but all the evidence points in that direction. God's word gives you stability. It gives you a deep sense of purpose and meaning. It helps you understand life and death and other issues. And the message about Christ demands a decision. The gospel means good news. Here's what the gospel is in a nutshell. That you and I were created by God in his image. That unlike our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, they were born with the same senses of sight, hearing, and smell, and so forth. They were created with the same things that we have, but they had a spiritual sense. They had a spiritual life. They were able to walk and talk literally with God. And God gave them a prohibition. He said, In the day you eat of a certain tree, you'll surely die. We read in the Bible, about Genesis chapter 3, they ate of that tree... They didn't drop dead, though. They lived a long time after that. But what happened is they died spiritually. That spiritual sense died. God promised even then that he would send a redeemer later. We see, you go through, read through the Old Testament, and you see a whole system of, of sacrifices and feasts and so forth that were designed to teach a very simple thing. They were very complex, but there was a simple meaning, and that was substitute. And one of the... the The capital events of this was each year God's people, the the Jews, would gather and following strict instructions God had given them, an animal would be sacrificed on this day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. and According to God's instructions, the priest in front of all these huge, huge multitude of people would take this animal that was not to have any broken bones or blemishes or diseases and scars, he would place his hands on the head of that animal, and on behalf of the people he would confess their sins. Lord, we have done this and this and we have stolen or we have, we have lied or we've committed adultery or, or, or we've not loved you the way we should love you. We've, not, we've had other gods before you. And he would confess those sins. Even a small child in the multitude could have looked and known that animal is my sacrifice. And then the priest would take a razor-sharp knife and what would he do? He'd slit the throat of that animal. It would die instantly. And then he would take the blood of this animal And there were specific instructions as to how he was to pour it over the lid of the box that contained the Ten Commandments. What that was showing is the Ten Commandments, the law of God, condemns us all. So we need a substitute to take the punishment that we deserve, which is death. The animal in that case died. The blood was put on the box, the lid that contained the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, to show that the blood of this animal covers your guilt by breaking this law. All those were foreshadowings of the Redeemer who would come later, and that was Jesus, prophesied 700 years before he actually became a man. Isaiah the prophet said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. He said, I came down from heaven. He said, I and the Father are one. And his enemies knew what he meant because they wanted him stoned for blasphemy. He he was claiming to be God. He allowed himself to be arrested and crucified because he was the Lamb of God. He was the substitute. So what happened on that cross is that God, in the same way that he had taken the priest had taken that animal in the Old Testament and put the sins of the people on that animal then the animal had to die. So here was Jesus on the cross and my sin was placed on him. So as Here's Chip Miller, and God says, I made you. I want to have life with you, but there's a problem. There's your sin, and I must punish sin, and the punishment is death. But here's Jesus with no sin of his own. So what happened on the cross is God transferred my sin to him and punished him in my place. So he experienced death fullest. He experienced spiritual death on the cross, separation from God the Father and the Spirit. He experienced physical death that we just read about a moment ago. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and over a period of 40 days, he appeared, in one case, to 500 people at one time, a crowd bigger than this, at one time saw him. All in all, he appeared to more than 700 people over that time. The last commandment he gave to his followers, his disciples, was they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So how do we receive receive this payment? The Bible says we need to believe and repent, that we need to believe that, yes, I am created by God. I'm made in his image, but I have this problem called sin, and God must punish it, and the punishment is death, and I can't do enough good things to outweigh the bad. And therefore, Jesus came to be a substitute, to be my redeemer, and so I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for me. I trust that. I receive that payment for me. And I repent. In other words, I turn from trusting to myself. I have a change of mind, and I trust in God. And I say, Lord, I want You to make me the person You want me to be. Have you received that? Now, here's here's the thing. This last thought: the gospel is not just information; it is an invitation. But it's not an invitation you take and can set aside. Let me give you an example. It's like a wedding proposal. Years ago, I flew from Fort Lauderdale to Huntsville, Alabama, and Barbara picked me up in her father's Dotson 260Z, and we drove by the Tennessee River on the way, the 40-minute drive to her town. I said, how about pull over here by the river? It had to be near water and boats, you know, so. I asked her to marry me. I had the ring, and I said, will you marry me? Thankfully, she, she said yes, but what if she had looked at me and said, that really is an interesting perspective. <laughs> I think I'd like to compare this with all the other world perspectives and think about this. Or, I'm glad that's true for you, Chip, but I don't think it's true for me. <laughs> that's the gospel. The gospel, God gives us this enough historical basis, enough understanding. We don't have all the questions answered, but enough And he says, believe and repent. And I think we want to say, that's an interesting perspective. It may be late in my life when I'm on my deathbed. I'll think about it. It's a wedding invitation. And a wedding wedding proposal, I should say, a wedding proposal demands an answer. Yes or no. Count the cost? Yes. Don't do it impulsively. That's the gospel. So God invites you and me to enter into a lifelong commitment of faithfulness to one another. If you put your trust in him this day, believe in him that he was who he said he was, that he did what he said he did. And if so, then you can know that you are right with God and that your sins are forgiven. And that when you depart this life, as we all will, that you will spend an eternity with him in a place that Christ prepared after he raised from the dead that we just read about. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you care about each of us here. We come from a variety of backgrounds, even nationalities, family situations. Um, We thank you that you made us in your image, and we thank you that you desire life with us through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we will stand and sing our closing hymn if you'll turn there. Christ the Lord has risen a day in your bulletin. <laughs> with the blessing of God. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.